Thanks, Josh. So you may not recognize me. My name is Jonathan Welch, and I am our other pastoral resident here at Bethany Green Lake. I get the joy of working with all our college students. So if you're a college student in here, I would love to meet you if I haven't met you already. I also get the opportunity to work with all our groups at Bethany. So Josh and I co-run that and co-oversee our small groups here at Bethany. And I'm excited to be with you. I've been on staff at Bethany for about five and a half months. And in my time at Bethany and in Seattle, I'm a native Southern Californian. I've learned something about Southern Californians that's a bit interesting. See, up here, I drive the five freeway to get places or the 405 freeway to get places. And I'm realizing more and more, the longer I'm up here, how much that sets me apart from everybody else because we're the only place in the world I found out, including Northern California, they don't do it, where we put the in front of freeways. So if at any point tonight I say the five or the 405, just give me a little bit of grace. And if you don't mind, we'll, uh, we'll pray and we'll get started today. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the ability to gather, to worship, and to come together as a body. I ask that you speak to us today and you speak through me to these people what they need to hear tonight. In your name we pray, amen. So as a church, for the past several weeks, we have been in a series entitled, Can You See It? Building a Common Vision of the kingdom of God. In the past several weeks, we have been camping out and taking a deep dive in one particular section of the Sermon on the Mount. We have been camping out in the Beatitudes and going Beatitude by Beatitude. And as Josh read for us this evening, I want to dive deep into Matthew 5, 9, which simply is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. When you think of a peacemaker, I am curious, what do you envision? When you think of a peacemaker, what comes to mind? When you think of a peacemaker and someone who makes peace, what do you think of? Maybe there's some of you in this room who think of lawyers who protect innocent lives. Maybe there's some of you who even think of a podcast like Serial. Maybe there's some of you in here who think of legendary heroes and figures of history like Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. Maybe still for others, you think of a missionary who goes overseas to share the gospel with a group of people who have never, ever heard the name of Jesus before. Maybe still for others, you think of politicians who are trying to enact laws and legislation to protect and make the world a better place. And maybe for some of you in here, you think of someone who is working to protect the rights of the unborn, the refugee, the marginalized, the other. As I think about what a peacemaker is to me. I am drawn to one person in particular, and that person is my father. It's not because my father is anything great, though I think he was a very good father. It is because for over 30 years, walking the streets of Southern California, he wore a badge, he put on a bulletproof vest, and wore a police uniform. By title, by definition, by employment history, my father was a peacemaker. And I know that just by bringing this up potentially. There could be a couple of places we're at in the room with the idea of a police officer. So please don't lose me in this idea. I know that maybe for some of us, we have negative encounters or perceptions of what law enforcement is right now. And at the other side of the coin, maybe like me, you have somebody in law enforcement or you are in law enforcement. I simply bring up the idea of my father as a peacemaker to show us what a classical definition of peacemaker is. And I'm drawn to a story that my father loved to tell. And it's a story where he brought peace to a complicated and difficult situation. It is a story that I like to call the story of the minister. And so 
My father was working in the jail for several years, and he had an office set in the far back recess of the jail, kind of away from all the action that would typically happen on a normal day in the jail. And one day, he's there, and he begins to hear a commotion and a ruckus coming from the hallway near his office. And he doesn't know what's going on, but he knows that he is the next stop on the chain. He knows that he is going to see whatever it is is causing a commotion between the other officers. And so slowly, he begins to hear the feet of the inmate shuffling towards him. He begins to hear the police officers' handcuffs clicking, clacking against each other, and he hears their keys bouncing around in their pockets. Finally, they bring the inmate in front of his door, and he sees what the commotion is about. There is a man dressed from head to toe in clerical garb. Standing before him is a minister. In my father's role at the time, he was working to figure out who would get released for community service. So he immediately thinks this minister is trying to play the system and get special favor and grace for being a minister. And my father's anger is rising rightfully. And as he's going about his job, trying to figure out if this man will be released for community service, The minister proceeds to tell him that this outfit, this wardrobe, was not his idea. The Archbishop of the Anglican Church of America ordered and commanded this minister to dress like this to report to jail as a means to humble him and to hopefully grow him in humility. As my father hears that, he understands and realizes that this man will be released for community service. And so in the middle of this complex and difficult situation, he proceeds to offer this minister one line of advice. Simply, whatever you do, whenever you show up to community service, do not dress like this. It will not earn you any favor. It will not earn you any grace. All it is going to do is create conflict and difficulty for the other officers and for yourself. Just please don't dress like that. And at that point, my father thought the story was over. He never thought he would hear from this again until one day, a few weeks later, his captain shows up to him and hands him this letter right here. And in this letter right here, the Archbishop of the Anglican Church of America writes to my dad and tells him this. We wish to commend the above-mentioned officer who has recently displayed that rare ability of those in positions of power to temper justice with mercy. He is, in our opinion, a credit to his uniform, and we pray that like-minded men and women of his caliber fill positions in law enforcement and government in general. In this situation, my father was able to bring peace to a complex and difficult situation. And this is just one possible example of what being a peacemaker actually looks like. I simply say this snapshot to help us broaden our imagination, to help us open our mind of what peacemaking could actually get could actually look like. Far too often, I think we get stuck in the notion in the idea that someone else is a peacemaker, not me. The situation is either too big or too large, and I can't dream of bringing peace to that situation. The people like my father, they are the ones who were a peacemaker. Not me, not you. But I'm here to tell us tonight that we are all peacemakers. We get to bring about peace to complicated and difficult situations all around us at all times. And so we get to learn to be peacemakers in our neighborhood because Jesus ultimately is the ultimate peacemaker. And before we get too deep into this, we just need to understand that peacemaking is not simply about being nice or tolerant. Simply, a peacemaker takes an active stance in differing sides. When there's conflict, a peacemaker comes between it and tries to bridge the divide. 
A peacemaker takes active steps in complicated and difficult situations like my father did with the minister that stood before him. Peacemakers ultimately want to see reconciliation and peace reign by partnering with Jesus in the peace he brings today in our lives and our world. And so tonight, we are going to take a walk down three avenues to learn how to be a peacemaker in our neighborhood. The first avenue we're gonna take a look at is the idea of cultural peacemaking. The second avenue we're gonna look at is the idea of relational peacemaking. And the third avenue we're gonna look at is the idea of personal peacemaking. Avenue one, learning to be a cultural peacemaker in your neighborhood and our neighborhood. Historically, as we think of this idea of blessed are the peacemakers, the church has taken two stances on war historically. They are the idea of pacifism or the idea of just war. But far too often, I think, I know I myself, and most of us in this room probably don't find ourselves fully in one camp or the other. We stand somewhere outside of it. But throughout church history, we have been trying to figure out, as a collective, what does blessed are the peacemakers look like? And as I think about this throughout church history, there's one story in particular that I am drawn to, and it is the story of Emperor Constantine. Perhaps you have heard of Emperor Constantine. He is credited in the 300s with making Christianity the official religion of Rome. And so he converted to Christianity and decided this is a good idea, we should make it our official religion. And at the time, he was trying to figure out probably how to live out this idea of blessed are the peacemakers. And so on the shields of his soldiers, he had them put the cross. That way the last thing they saw in battle before they died was the cross. At the same time, he had all of his soldiers get baptized. However, when he had all of his soldiers get baptized, he did not have every body part of his soldiers get baptized. He had them unsheath their sword, hold their sword hand above the water, and baptize everything pretty much from the shoulder down. Because he was trying to figure out and wrestle with the idea of what does blessed are the peacemakers actually look like. As long as the church has existed, we as disciples of Jesus have been trying to figure out how do we play out and live out blessed are the peacemakers in our own cultural settings that we find ourselves. And today, I think of the fact that roughly 13 miles away from us is a military base called Bangor Military Base. And at this military base, it has the largest concentrations of nuclear weapons in the world. I don't mention this because I want to take a stance on this, but simply to illustrate to us today that we still live in the same tension of learning how to live out blessed are the peacemakers. How are we supposed to live out this beatitude when we have that right next door to us? How are we supposed to live it out in light of knowing what is so close to us? This is our culture. This is our historical time and place that we find ourselves in as Seattleites. And when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he himself was saying it to a particular time, people, place, and culture as well. Jesus was saying it to the first century Jews who thought the only appropriate or quality response to the Roman occupiers and oppression they were facing was through revolutionary violence. And this time that Jesus was living in and speaking in and doing ministry in was a time of turmoil and upheaval. It was a time of complicated and difficult interactions. And at the same time, around the time that many think the Gospel of Matthew was written, where we find the Sermon on the Mount, where we find our Beatitudes, there was a war between the year A.D. 66 and A.D. 73. And in this war, the Jewish temple from the time of Jesus was destroyed. So as we think about that, as we jump into 
the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was giving his disciples the Sermon on the Mount, we can guess that there were probably two types of people in attendance listening to the words of Jesus. The first type of people were the Zealots, and they were a Jewish resistance movement. They were hyper-passionate, and their goal, they wanted to reclaim Jerusalem and Israel for the sake of Israel, and they wanted to do it by any means necessary. For them, they thought that peace could only be brought by the sword. And our second group of people that were probably in attendance were appeasers. They were the complete opposite. They were diametrically opposed to everything the zealots were about. They were people like Matthew the tax collector that we would meet a little while later in scripture. And they worked for the oppressors. They thought the best way to bring about peace in their land in their time was by working for and appeasing their Roman oppressors. For them, peace was found in serving and pleasing Rome. The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, come to these people in this time and this place. And at the same time, it was coming to the people of Israel, the first followers of Jesus, when they were trying to figure out how the messianic expectation of Zechariah 9, 9 through 12 would be lived out. And in those verses, we would see that the Messiah would come in peace. He would end warfare. He would not just proclaim peace through the land, but that in the end, peace would ultimately be accomplished. And as I think about this, I wonder, don't we live in the same socio-political time as the Sermon on the Mount? Don't we happen to live in just as divided a state as the first century Israelites and first followers of Jesus found themselves in? Don't we find and see very different ways of bringing about peace, even when we look inside our own church, our own neighborhoods, our own schools, our own jobs, our own families? Don't we live in the same uneasy, turbulent, questioning time that Jesus gave us the Beatitudes. Our context may be different, but the questions, fears, concerns, and realities, I think are definitely the same. As we learn to be peacemakers, walking down avenue number one, learning to be cultural peacemakers in our neighborhood, I'm drawn back to our scripture reading that Josh read for the day out of Romans 12, which I think will also help enlighten us as we walk down the next two avenues as well. See, we see in Romans 12 that we are supposed to hate what is evil, cling to what is good, practice good, give food and drink to your enemy. And in verse 18, we also see, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, on me, on us as a church, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. Are you living at peace with anyone, much less everyone? As a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, we need to love peace. And we need to love peace so much we pursue it in all areas of our life, in all avenues that we find ourselves, find ourselves walking on. The opportunities presented to us in today's world and our culture in Seattle are absolutely endless. So I just wonder, what are we, what are you, what am I actually going to do with them? And as we take a walk on Avenue 2, we are going to learn, to be, we are going to learn what it means to be a relational peacemaker in our neighborhood. As Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes with blessed are the peacemakers, he dives into it in more depth a little later on in his sermon. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip open to Matthew 5, we're going to be jumping into verse 43. So in Matthew 5, 43, Jesus tells us this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? But are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans, non-Christians, non-disciples do that. Are there people in your life that are just really hard for you to love and pray for? Are there people in your life you don't get along with no matter what you do? Is there someone in your life who just rubs you wrong all the time? And I think as we think about becoming relational peacemakers, it has to begin with these people in our life where our relationships are strained and shattered. Where and what are these shattered relationships for you? As I think about this, I think about the fact that I have an amazing, incredible, wonderful older sister. She is practically my best friend. At the same time, I have two wonderful parents who you will, if you talk to me at any length at some point, you'll probably hear me mention one of the three of them. But at the same time, I have a fourth member of my family that while I'm not proud to admit this, I never talk about him. I don't ever want to bring up my older brother because for much of my adult life, our relationship has been filled with conflict and strife. And for the first time, I got to travel back down to Southern California this Christmas, and I just started processing through this idea of what would it look like to be at peace with my brother? How in the world could I be at peace in the middle of conflict with my brother? And so I started reflecting on the fact that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, that I know that he endured my sin, he became a man and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for my sin, that Jesus ultimately brought me more peace than I could ever dream of. And this is the foundation for the grace and peace that I receive hourly. And that if Jesus could do that for me, then couldn't I possibly, maybe, find some sort of way of working on making peace with my brother? So while I was down in Southern California and interacting with my brother over Christmas, I learned one valuable lesson and one valuable thing about peacemaking. And it's simply this. We make peace one conversation at a time. We simply make peace one conversation at a time. Where does this hit home for you? Maybe you have a neighbor that you just can't stand because no matter what, they won't keep their dogs from barking. Maybe you have a neighbor that you don't really know, but they put up that one political candidate sign that you just can't stand. Maybe you have a family member like me who just drives you nuts. Maybe you're here today and you're married and it's your spouse. And maybe you're wondering why you married your spouse in the first place or why you're even still together. Maybe you have a boss who gives you tasks that are, that are not your responsibility or gives you deadlines that are absolutely impossible to meet. Maybe you have a, a roommate who is messy and dirty and it just drives you up the wall. Maybe you have a coworker. You know that coworker who cooks fish in the office or who constantly tries to sell you their child's fundraisers. That coworker. Simply, I think we make peace one conversation at a time and it begins in these relationships. As we walk through a world in need of peace, it can be so overwhelming to think about how you can actually bring peace in this hurting, divided, and complicated world that we find ourselves in. So I wonder, what if we simply started somewhere tangible, somewhere right next door with one conversation?
being a cultural peacemaker or relational peacemaker can be a bit overwhelming, at least if you're anything like me. Just thinking about these avenues can lead to so many more questions than answers. But as we take a walk down Avenue 3, I want to get real personal, I want to get tangible, and I want to get a bit introspective. I want to look at what learning to be a personal peacemaker in our neighborhood looks like for us. And as I think about this, I realize peace has to begin inside of me. Peace has to begin inside of you. It has to begin inside of us. In Matthew, later on, chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus will tell us this. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to use you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Through the words of Jesus, we see that embodying the identity of being a peacemaker means going against the grain and being countercultural. And the words that Jesus said right here in the first century would have been absolutely shocking and scandalous. To start things off, to be slapped on the other cheek would have meant that the person who slapped you would have gone fully intentional with it. And so to give them your other cheek would imply they had to backhand you. At the same time, if we think about the idea of giving them your coat as well as your shirt, in that culture, you had more than one shirt, but you only had one coat. So the moment you offered your coat to the person, they knew you were going above and beyond, that you were sacrificing something for yourself and possibly losing out on something. And my favorite here is the idea of if someone asks you to go one mile, go to. Because back in this first century culture, a Roman centurion could command any Roman citizen to carry his pack, his belongings for one mile, but not a single step more. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, his followers, to surprise him, show him favor and grace, and go the extra mile. Jesus is illustrating simply to his disciples that peacemaking starts inside of us. As it flows out of us, we are then able to go against the grain and be countercultural. Peacemaking starts in us before it can flow out of us. Peacemaking starts in us before it can flow out of us. And I know being a follower of Jesus is not always easy. It's not always fun. And being a follower of Jesus means living in the tension. It means living in the tension of the values of this world and the values of Jesus. It means living in the tension between peace and conflict. And how do we actually go about it. And I, as I think of this, I am drawn to a story in John chapter 18 where we see our two main characters. Our two main characters in this story are Jesus and Peter. And it's the night that Jesus is about to be betrayed and handed over to be crucified. And the guards come to take Jesus away. And in the moment, in the passion of it, Peter decides he's going to stand up and defend Jesus. So he unsheaths his sword and in the process, he winds up cutting off a guard's ear. I don't know if that's really good aim or really bad aim, but he cuts off a guard's ear, and then Jesus picks up the ear, heals the guard, and as he's doing that, he looks at Peter and tells him, put away your sword. Put away your sword. What might Jesus be asking you and I tonight to put away? He asked Peter to put away his sword. What is he asking us to put away for the sake of peace? Can you imagine the tension in that moment? I think Peter did. And Peter still 
didn't quite know what to do. So what might Jesus be asking us to put away tonight? And Jesus, I think, is the ultimate peacemaker, and we see that in Matthew 20, 28. He tells us that he did not come to be served, but to serve. Shouldn't we as disciples do the same? Jesus tells us in 1 Peter that he came to save lives. And we find out that Jesus poured out his precious blood for our sake. Shouldn't a disciple be willing to do the same? You and I may never carry a badge, but if you are a follower of Jesus, we carry something else. In, in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus tells us what that something else is. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. What are we as disciples who are living out the reality and calling of the Beatitudes supposed to be carrying? It's the cross. We are to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. We are to take off and put down our will, our opinions, our values, our desires, our purposes, and our life, and take the posture of our Lord, our King, our Savior, and our God, and carry our cross, Jesus' cross, the life that he lived while here on earth. This is a call to allow Jesus to be at work in our life, in our hearts, creating peace in us so we can then become equipped to partner in God's peace in the world. Peace must be in us before we can then be agents of peace. Following in the footsteps of Jesus is what we want to do in all three of these avenues we've talked about tonight when we learn to be a peacemaker in culturally, relationally, and personally. As we take a walk down these avenues, we are taking a walk in the areas that make up our neighborhoods, the places that we find ourselves living out our everyday life. When we are living out being a peacemaker in these three avenues, we will then be agents of peace in our neighborhoods. And where I want to close is on the last half of the beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be children of God. For they shall be children of God. Peter has quite the interesting story throughout scripture and throughout the gospels and throughout the book of Acts. And in particular, he has a fascinating discovery and journey in Acts chapter 10. And I think it gives us a practical example of what this beatitude looks like. In Acts 10, Peter encounters a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was in a town called Caesarea. And Caesarea was an ocean city. And it's a lot like the modern-day equivalent of beautiful San Diego, California. It was the home to the Roman Navy. And it was a culturally significant place for its time. As Peter is interacting with Cornelius, Peter finds out that Cornelius is a soldier in the Italian cohort. He also finds out that Cornelius was a non-Jew, a Gentile, who feared and worshipped God. And after Peter has his encounter with Cornelius, he proceeds to then get a vision in a dream from God. And in this vision, in Acts chapter 10, Peter simply realizes and comes to the realization that no matter what, non-Jews, Gentiles, you and I, are fully acceptable in the life of God's people. And in Acts 10.34, Peter tells us this. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. The thing that fascinates me in Acts chapter 10 in this narrative is that nowhere in this narrative does Peter ever tell Cornelius that he needs to stop being a soldier, he needs to quit his job, and find a new profession. 
what Peter simply cares about is that Cornelius will ultimately find spiritual peace. What Peter cares about above all else is that Cornelius encounters Jesus. Peter wants Cornelius to encounter the active, living, powerful God who lives inside you and me tonight. That is what Peter cared about. And we see this idea, I think, too, in Paul in Galatians 3, 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we live out our three avenues of cultural, relational, and personal peacemaking, we get to be agents of peace in our neighborhood no matter where or what we find ourselves doing. I can't make peace because I, Jonathan Welch, am anything special or wonderful or because I happen to be a pastor on staff at a church. I simply get to be a peacemaker because I have the living, active, powerful God living inside me and through me in the power of the Holy Spirit. As I think about this for us practically, when you go to work at Boeing building a plane, you get to go as one looking to display the peace of Jesus. If you work in a high-rise in downtown Seattle, you get to display the peace of Jesus in your office. If you work as a server at a restaurant, you get to display the peace of Jesus to that couple at your table on a date. If you are a student, you even get to display the peace of Jesus while you're taking a midterm for organic chemistry. You get to display the peace of Jesus wherever you go. And as I think about being a peacemaker, I think that it has to start right here, right in our neighborhoods. It has to start right where we live, right where we work, with those who are closest to us. And the beauty of this beatitude, for me, simply is this. And in doing this, and being peacemakers in our neighborhoods where we find ourselves, we then shall be called children of God. But if we are peacemakers, hopefully those closest to us will also then become children of God. And at this point, I'll call the band forward. And hopefully when you walked in tonight, inside your bulletin was one of these cards. I can see. For the past several weeks, we've been responding with these cards and writing things on them and dropping them in the baskets. And so tonight, as we respond, we're going to respond in two ways. The first is this card. And I simply want you to think about where can you see it? Where can you see the peace of Jesus on display? Maybe it's in your life. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's in somewhere else's. Maybe there's a place specifically you want to see the peace of Jesus on display. And maybe you even have a story like my father and the minister that he encountered where he was able to faithfully deliver justice and mercy in a complex and difficult situation. Where can you see the peace of Jesus on display? And secondly, tonight, we get to partake in communion. And as I think about communion, I am just reminded by the fact that the original communion was a meal around the table. And as I think about the table, I think of the fact that the table is one of the places where we can invite others to it and find peace at the table. So as we think about being peacemakers in our neighborhood, we get to come and take communion at the table because ultimately, when push came to shove, Jesus spilled his blood for us to create peace for us and his body was broken for us to create peace. And so this table is a metaphor of peace. And tonight, we get to worship and celebrate the peace that Jesus has made for us through communion, through these cards. When you come up here, feel free to drop them in the basket and do some sort of clockwise arrangement, and I'll pray for us.
Jesus, we are so grateful for all that you are doing in our life and our community. Help us be agents of your peace and help us celebrate the work that you are doing in our lives and in the world. In your name we pray.